Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The word of the Lord. Well, um, it's good to see you all this morning. I want to say welcome and Merry Christmas. It's, it's great to celebrate this time of year with you. Um, you know, human beings have a complicated relationship with hope. It's kind of um, like sharing your relationship status on social media. A lot of times people don't know what to say, and so they'll just say, well, it's complicated. We have a complicated relationship with hope. In fact, as best I can see, um, the whole history of humanity has been this constant toggling back and forth between cynicism and hope. So, for instance, at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, people were very optimistic. They felt like humanity is on the verge of finally creating the utopia that we know this world is meant to be. But then World War I hit, and people were crushed with despair. Uh, cynicism and hope. Cynicism and hope. Or if you look at recent American cultural history, uh, in the 1990s, not that long ago, the great writer David Foster Wallace wrote an essay called E Pluribus Unum in which he talks about the irony and the cynicism that uh, pervade American culture. And especially he talks a lot about our television shows and says our television shows are a perfect example. They're filled with irony. Irony is a stance or a posture that, that says love, meaning, goodness, truth, justice, all that kind of stuff, that's nothing but a, a sentimental fiction. It, the, the world isn't really like that. Anyone who believes in stuff like that is, uh, they're a fool, they're naive. 
But then in the 2000s, really interesting, there was a whole crop of TV shows that, that came up that were unashamed and unafraid to embrace things like, um, like meaning and justice and goodness and kindness and sincerity. Shows like The Office or Parks and Rec, um, you know? Uh, in fact, there's a whole name for this cultural movement. It's called The New Sincerity. It celebrates characters like Leslie Nopes or Pam Beasley who sincerely believe in things like goodness and kindness and sincerity, unabashedly so. You see, human beings have always had a complicated relationship with hope. On the one hand, we want to believe in things like meaning and love and justice and goodness and beauty and truth. But on the other hand, we're afraid to really give our hearts to those things because this world can be a cruel, a cruel place. A lot of times we feel the world isn't really like that. And so we keep toggling as a, as a civilization back and forth between cynicism and hope, between cynicism and hope. And I don't know where you're at this morning, you know, In fact, I don't know where we're at as a culture right now. If you were going to press me, I'd say we may be somewhere in between those two things. Although if you really pressed me, I'd say I think maybe we're edging back towards cynicism. Especially given the levels of corruption and division in our culture nowadays. Even if Americans aren't cynical about the world, boy, oh boy, we are cynical about each other. Aren't we? We keep toggling back and forth between cynicism and hope. So I don't know where you're at this morning in that, you know, spectrum. Maybe you're hopeful about um, where the world is at, or maybe you're here and you're not so sure about all of that. Maybe you would like to believe in things like goodness and beauty and truth and love and redemption, but you've trusted in those things in the past and you've been burned. So today and tomorrow as we approach Christmas, uh, what we're doing is we're looking at uh, the gospel writer Matthew's account of the events that surrounded the birth of Jesus Christ in the world. And this morning's passage especially um, looks at all these things we've just been talking about, meaning, hope, love, goodness. It looks at those things and it says, you're not wrong to hope for those things. Those things do exist, and you're not a fool to believe in them. They do exist, and, and you can find them, but you need some help to find them. You can't get there all by yourself. What does that mean? Let's look at three things this passage shows us about finding ultimate fulfillment for our hopes. We're going to see that we all are looking for a deeper story. Secondly, we're going to see that worldly wisdom can't get us all the way there. And thirdly, we're going to see what will get us there. Okay? We're all looking for a deeper story. Worldly wisdom can't get us all the way. What will get us all the way? Okay? First, we're all looking for a deeper story. Now, this passage is a famous story itself. The wise men see this star in the east, and they go looking for Jesus. Now, to our modern ears, that might sound a little mythical, but there are actually some very good reasons, historical reasons, why this may not be so far-fetched at all. First, there were actually a number of large-scale astronomical events that happened right around this time in history. Secondly, um, ancient historians um, like Suetonius or Tacitus have recorded that there was a very widespread rumor in the ancient world that there was going to be a great king who would be born in Judea. Uh, Thirdly and lastly, you know, Jews and Christians in those days um, were very negative about something like astrology, which is what these wise men were doing. 
Um, which meant that it would have been potentially very embarrassing for this gospel writer, Matthew, to put um, basically people who were in the occult into a story about the birth of Jesus. It would have been very embarrassing to do that unless it actually happened. So this story really is not as far-fetched as it might on the surface sound. But what about the story itself? Who are these wise men? The Greek word is magi, which you may have heard. Uh, these wise men, or these magi, were, as we just mentioned, they were astrologers. They, uh, they also would have been into things like the interpretation of dreams or magic. And uh, even though we would maybe look at that nowadays and say, well, we now know that that's bogus science, it's important to understand that in those days, uh, this would have represented the pinnacle of science and learning and education. These guys were like the most highly respected, highly um, educated um, intellectuals of their day. The modern equivalent for us would have been like, you know, our scientists and our academics. These, these men were the elite. They were the academics. They were the thought leaders of their day. And, and here's the thing. What were they looking for? Think about this. I want to drill down on this a little bit. What were they really looking for in the stars? Ultimately, they were looking for meaning. It's the same reason that people are into astrology today. I mean, we all want to know that there's, you know, some deeper story about this world, that this world, we want to know what kind of world we live in. And especially, we want to know that the story of this world is a story that's actually going somewhere and going somewhere good. And especially we want to know how our lives fit into that story that's going somewhere good. We're looking for a deeper story about an ultimate good. We're all looking for that, a deeper story about an ultimate good. Um, but here's the thing. Um, you'll notice this, this wasn't just any old star that they were looking for. Notice they say we saw his star. Whose star? Well, it's going back to that rumor, that, that legend about a king who was going to be born. They weren't just looking for meaning in general. They were looking for this king, for this ruler, which means they were also looking for justice. They were looking for order. They were looking for the restoration of all the things that are wrong with this world. That's what they were really looking for when they were chasing this star. And friends, we're all looking for that. We're all looking for meaning and justice and truth. We're all hoping for a greater, deeper story about a greater, more ultimate good. We're all looking for that. So for instance, Andrew Del Banco is a professor of American studies at Columbia University in New York City. Um, he wrote a book some years ago called The Real American Dream, and the subtitle of that book is A Meditation on Hope. The book basically is a, a history, a very short history, cultural history of America and the things that America has, in, has hoped in over the years. So here's what he says in, in the introduction. He writes, the premise of this book is that human beings need to organize the sensations amid which we pass our days. Uh, pain, desire, pleasure, fear. He says we need to organize those sensations into a story. And when that story leads somewhere and thereby helps us navigate through life to its inevitable terminus in death, it gives us hope. He says, we must imagine some end to life that transcends our own tiny allotment of days and hours if we are to keep at bay the dim, back-of-the-mind suspicion that one may be adrift in an absurd world. 
the lurking suspicion that all our getting and spending amounts to nothing more than fidgeting while we wait for death. Wow. Hear what he's saying. We need to take all of the events, the, the, the jumble of data that fills our daily lives, you know, pain, pleasure, desire, fear, all that stuff. We need to shape that into a story, and especially into a story that gives us hope, a deeper story about an ultimate good, because we're all looking for that. We're all looking for meaning. We're all looking for hope. Every human being needs that. It's part of what it means to be human. And friends, here's what I want to offer you by way of takeaway for this first point. Everybody's looking for meaning. Everybody's looking for hope. Everybody's looking for a deeper story about an ultimate good. If you're here this morning and you're exploring Christianity, I want to encourage you to keep exploring, to keep looking, to keep pressing into this hope, these things that you're looking for. One of the really interesting things about these wise men, many scholars believe that they would have been from Persia, which is modern-day Iraq, uh, which means that to get to Jerusalem, they would have had to travel some 800 miles. It would have taken, in those days, about 40 days to do it. It would have been incredibly difficult and incredibly expensive. That means that, that searching for the fulfillment of these things they were hoping for was no mere passing fancy to these wise men. They were going out of their way to find fulfillment and answers for the things that they were yearning for. And if you're here this morning exploring Christianity, I want to encourage you to go out of your way, press into this, keep asking the questions, keep searching. But secondly, uh, if you're a Christian, this is important for you too. Because when you're talking to your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers and they're saying things that you don't necessarily agree with, are you able to hear the yearnings underneath the things they're saying? Even if the things they're saying offend you. So for instance, Matthew, the gospel writer, he's talking about these wise men, these astrologers, people who are into the occult. But as he's looking at them, and as we mentioned, you know, Jews and Christians of those days would have looked at these things very negatively, but Matthew doesn't look at them and say, what a bunch of idiots. He doesn't say, heathens, pagans, can you believe? He doesn't ridicule them. He recognizes that, that the core yearnings of what they were looking for, meaning, truth, justice, that those were good yearnings, God-given yearnings. And so when you're talking to people in the world, and even though you may not agree with the way they're looking for things, can you listen to the core yearning that you share with them? Can you listen to the core longings that you both have in common and build a dialogue on those things? Listen for those things, affirm those things, and build a dialogue, build a relationship on the things that you share in common with them. See, that's our first point. We're all looking for a deeper story. But secondly, we see here that um, worldly wisdom can't get us all the way. And this actually may be my favorite part of the story. As we just mentioned, these wise men were really the thought leaders of their day. They were the intellectual elites of their day. They, they represented the pinnacle of science, of learning, and of worldly wisdom. And they had all these longings, all these things that they were looking for, and they were going out of their way to find satisfaction and fulfillment for these longings. And I want you to notice that 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 worldly wisdom they had, their science, their education, was really able to get them a long way towards finding satisfaction. I mean, it got them all the way to Jerusalem. So you'll notice in verse 2, they arrive in Jerusalem, and they start asking around. They say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? 
Their science, their learning, their worldly wisdom is able to get them really close, but it can't get them all the way. It can get them in the vicinity. It gets them as far as Jerusalem. But in order to get to Bethlehem, in other words, in order to get to Jesus, in order to find the true fulfillment of their longings, they have to listen to Scripture. They have to listen to the prophets that say, um, in Bethlehem of Judea, from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. You see, worldly wisdom can get you close. It, It can get you in the vicinity, but to get all the way to the fulfillment of your longings, it won't get you all the way. You have to listen to Scripture because worldly wisdom won't get you all the way. Everyone is looking for meaning. We're all looking for a deeper story about an ultimate good, but worldly wisdom can't get you all the way. It won't get you all the way there. So let me give you a couple of examples. Um, Take meaning, for instance. We were just talking about how meaning, the search for meaning, is one of the core longings of humanity. We're all looking for that. Um, Richard Dawkins is one of the most well-known scientists in the world. He's especially known for writing a number of books about atheism and uh, especially how belief in God is really nothing more than a harmful delusion. Uh, Richard Dawkins says that, um, you know, the, the tools of science can really tell you quite a bit about the world, but he's saying that, um, you know, when we're looking for meaning in our life, uh, according to Richard Dawkins, if you use only the tools of science, you will never find meaning in the universe. So in one of his books, he says this, the universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. In another book, he says that life is empty, pointless, futile, a desert of meaninglessness and insignificance. It basically says that anyone who looks to God or any kind of spiritual reality in order to give your life meaning, he says they're infantile. But then it's really interesting. He goes on in the the same passage in that book to acknowledge that human beings can't live without meaning, that we can't not ask the why question. We, We all need meaning. So he turns right around and he says this, the truly adult view is that our life is as meaningful as full and wonderful as we choose to make it. In other words, and listen, I'm really, I hope I'm being faithful to his thought process here. He's saying this, ultimate meaning doesn't exist, but human beings can't live without it, so we have to create it for ourselves. Now, here's my question. Why in the world would we try to create something that doesn't exist? I mean, why would it even occur to us Where would we even get the idea for this unless it does exist? But if it does exist, one of the world's foremost scientists and atheists is telling us that you will never find it using the tools of science. Worldly wisdom cannot get us all the way to the ultimate satisfaction of our deepest desires. Or let's take another one. Let's look at justice and morality, another one of our core longings in society. You know, we have this narrative in our culture called historical progress. As Martin Luther King so famously said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. We have this narrative in our culture, these things we believe in, things like human rights, freedom, caring for the poor and the weak. In our culture, those things are non-negotiables. We wouldn't even dream of questioning them. But here's the question, where did those moral values come from? Tom Holland is a British historian, and um, 
He's an expert in ancient Roman history. Um, and he wrote an article a couple of years ago in which he talks about how even though he grew up in the church, he long since became an atheist. And uh, even so, he'd be studying for these books that he's written about ancient Roman history. And he said one of the really interesting things he began to notice as he was doing all his research was that all of the ancient moral values of the world that he was studying were really, really different from the moral values that he himself would have professed. So when he looked at the moral values of the ancient world, the best he could compare them to was that of an apex predator. You know, just ruthless, callous. And, and here's what he says about this at the end of this article. He says, he was thinking about it, and he writes, it was not just the extremes of callousness about the ancient world that I came to find shocking. It was the lack of a sense that the poor or the weak might have any intrinsic value. As such, he says, the founding conviction of the Enlightenment, that it owed nothing to the faith into which most of its greatest figures had been born, increasingly that came to seem to me unsustainable. Today, even as belief in God fades across the West, the countries that were once collectively known as Christendom continue to bear the stamp of Christianity it is the principal reason why most of us who live in post-Christian societies generally assume that every human life is of equal value. For instance, don't listen to Tom Holland. If, if, you know, listen to Friedrich Nietzsche, the great German philosopher. He was constantly saying this, and I mean constantly. He was not only one of the greatest philosophers who ever lived, he was also an expert historian, but he was constantly pointing out that all our modern, liberal, secular, moral values really come to us from Christianity. And understand something, Nietzsche was not defending Christianity. He hated Christianity, but he was constantly criticizing his fellow secular contemporaries and saying, look, you want to get rid of Christianity, but you want to hang on to Christian morality. It can't be done. He said, you're being intellectually dishonest. You, you can't get human rights from science and reason. It can't be done, Nietzsche said. Friends, we're all looking for a deeper story about an ultimate good, but the wisdom, the greatest wisdom of the world can't get us all the way there. All of our science, all of our learning, all of our education, it can't get us there. And I'm not saying that those aren't wonderful things. They are. They're gifts of God. We should... Uh, embrace them, we should learn from them, we should listen to them, we should use them, but none of those things are capable of getting us all the way to the fulfillment of our deepest desires. What will? Well, that leads to our last point. We've seen that we're all looking for a deeper story. We've seen that worldly wisdom can't get us all the way there, but lastly, what will get us there? What will do it? Here's what. In fact, I'm going to try and put this as simply as I can. You know what this passage is really all about? The ultimate message of this passage is that all of the, the wisdom of the world ultimately has to come down and bow before Jesus. That all of the wisdom of the world, all of the ultimate fulfillment of the deepest longings of our heart ultimately find their fulfillment only in Jesus. Only in Jesus. So look at the wise men. Look at their story here. I love their story. What were they doing? They were following the star following the star, following the star. The star was not the destination. It was just a signpost pointing them to something. If you're exploring Christianity this morning, 
then, then there are things you're looking for. There are longings that you have, longings for which you're looking for satisfaction. And, and there's a star in your life. In other words, there's something, some kind of core longing or desire that's stirring up these deeper longings inside of you. So maybe you love music. And when you listen, maybe it's just to a certain part of a certain song. It's almost as if there was a hand reaching out to you from another world, touching you, beckoning you, whispering to you, come, find me. Or maybe it's experiences that you've had with nature. Or maybe it's certain stories that you love to read. Or maybe it's a passion that you have for justice or social work. I don't know what it, what it is. But whatever it is for you, some inexpressible longing comes to you through those things, touching you, nudging you, calling to you about a world beyond this world. And whatever it is, it's a star. It's, it's nudging you along, pointing you along, pointing you to find something that you're really looking for. So what happened to these wise men? They were following the star, following the star, following the desires of their heart. But where did it ultimately lead them? To Jesus. When they got to the house, I love how it says it, they stopped looking at the star and they started looking at Jesus. And when they saw Jesus, what happened? It says they fell down and they worshiped him. Friends, every star, every longing, every desire, all of it is, is, is pointing you. If you find it, um, if you follow it long enough, follow it hard enough, if you follow it where it's ultimately pointing you, it'll eventually lead you to Jesus. But you have to look for it. I love the way it puts it. Um, actually, in verse 8, um, Herod, of all people, he told the wise men, go and search diligently for the child. And, you know, even though Herod was trying to kill Jesus, he spoke more wisely than he knew. Go and make a diligent search for the child. If you really want to find the fulfillment of the deepest longings of your heart, you have to go and search for the child. You have to find the ultimate fulfillment for those things in Jesus. Every star, every longing, if you follow it long enough, if you follow it hard enough, it'll ultimately lead you to Jesus. One of my favorite um, stories about how this happens is the story of the conversion of C.S. Lewis. Um, C.S. Lewis was one of the greatest writers and thinkers of the 20th century. Um, he gets quoted around here from time to time. Um, but C.S. Lewis, he was one of, you know, the world would have looked at him and said, this is one of the intellectuals. He's one of the elite. He, he was a professor at Oxford University, and for a good portion of his adult life, he was an atheist. He's someone who would have looked at the world around him and said, there is no ultimate reality. There is no ultimate meaning. This world is completely meaningless. That's what he would have said. Nonetheless, from the time that he was a young boy, he, there were certain stories, certain myths that he loved to read. They touched something inside of him. So in his autobiography, he talks about when he was a little boy, he was reading some Norse mythology, and there was a line someone calls out, Balder the beautiful is dead, is dead. And he said, it, something happened inside of me. A desire awoke within my heart that, that attacked me with an almost sickening intensity. A desire for joy, a longing arose inside of him. He loved these stories. And as he got older in life, Eventually, he became very attracted to the Christian, what he thought was a myth, the Christian story. 
And the reason is because that Christian story was stirring up all the same longings that all the other stories and myths were stirring up inside of him. He loved these things. And even though he didn't believe that Christianity was true, he loved the story because it awakened all the same desires in his heart. And eventually what happened was he was at Oxford and he became friends with another professor there, J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of Lord of the Rings, who happened to be a Christian. And one night, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien went for a walk around the campus of Oxford and they started talking about all of these stories that C.S. Lewis loved so much. And J.R.R. Tolkien basically said to C.S. Lewis, you know why you love these stories so much? It's because when you read them, they're pointing to you to, to a deeper reality, a deeper truth. Even though intellectually you don't believe that that deeper reality exists, you don't believe that there's any deeper story in the universe, when you read these stories, your heart knows better. You long for a king that will come and restore the world. You long for a love without parting, a love that never ends. You long to escape death, to escape all the hopelessness it brings. You long for these things, and when you read these stories, it stirs up all those desires in your heart. And C.S. Lewis said, yeah, but they're still not true. They're still just myths, and all myths are lies, even though breathed through silver. And Tolkien said, you're wrong, because there is one story, one myth, that actually is true. And all these other stories are pointing to that one true story. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not one more story that simply points to a deeper story. He told C.S. Lewis, the gospel of Jesus is the deeper story to which all the other stories are pointing. It's the one true story because it's the only story that became historical fact. That conversation was a bifurcation point in C.S. Lewis's life. It wasn't long after that that he became a Christian. Friends, Jesus Christ is the end of every story. He is the fulfillment of every hope. He is the deeper story to which all the other stories point. You know, the book of Numbers talks about the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites um, after they got freed from Egypt. And in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, there's a prophecy. It says this, it says, a star shall come out of Jacob. Jacob is like God's pet name for Israel. It says, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter, a king, a ruler, shall rise out of Israel. What's that talking about? It's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the true star that came. He is the true king that arose. Jesus is, is the one that all the prophecies are talking about. Friend, you know, the wise men came far from the east looking for Jesus, but Jesus came from heaven itself looking for you. And he made a careful and diligent search to find the deepest fulfillment of his longing for you. But Jesus the, the careful and diligent search that he made didn't lead him to some little house somewhere. It led him to the cross. The cross is the place where all the stories find their ultimate fulfillment because on the cross, Jesus Christ, the true king, the true mighty one, he traded a crown of glory for a crown of thorns. On the cross, Jesus Christ is the true beloved, the true son of the father, but he lost the love of the father so that he could win your heart back to God. 
Jesus Christ is the true source of life, but on the cross, he shed his blood. He poured out his life so that he could free you from death and all the hopelessness that it brings. Friends, Jesus Christ is the meaning of everything. He, he holds all things together, but on the cross, Jesus Christ was torn apart so that all the shattered hopes of your life, all the, the broken dreams and the forsaken desires that have been crushed by the hard realities of life in this pitiless world, so that all of those things could be mended and woven back together into a larger story, a deeper story, a story that tells us about a joy beyond the walls of this world, a joy that heals all the old hurts, that, that heals all the old pains, that reunites you to the God that is the ultimate fulfillment of the deepest longings of your heart. Dear ones, Jesus is the one who came looking for you. Go looking for the one who came looking for you. If you're exploring Christianity, I encourage you, go on that careful and diligent search for him. And if you are a Christian, I want to encourage you to keep pursuing him, keep seeking him. It's really hard to do in this distracted world, in this cynical world. But Jesus is the end of every story. He's the fulfillment of every hope. He is the deeper story to which all the other stories point. Go and make a careful and diligent search for him. Let's pray.